If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42, as we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark. And let me say thank you to our worship team and choir for leading us in uh, worship this morning. Thank you very much for um, that. I'm going to read Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Our culture has a very negative view of submission. When you think of the word submission today, a lot of women think about how they have been uh, told to act in culture or perhaps uh, tend to view that uh, word negatively when it comes to the idea of marriage. We live in a culture in which we have a negative view of submitting to those who employ us. We have a culture which has, by and large, a negative view of submission to our government. I think part of this is because submission and being lorded over often get confused Submission is the acknowledgement of the legitimacy of authority. And submission is important. Submission is important because there are people who legitimately have more knowledge than us, who have more ability than us, and who are in a role that is superior to ours. Submission in marriage is important. The Bible says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the different roles that we fill in marriage uh, necessitate our submission to one another in different ways. Submission is important in our job because our, our employer, our boss, they're our superior. And so it's important for uh, our provision of our family and our career advancement that we do have a spirit of submission. Uh, it's important to submit to someone who may be an expert in a professional field and they know what they're talking about in um, that area. Or it's important to submit to our government um, and what they ask us to do because there are consequences if we do not. Now, you can submit to someone in a thing or you can, cons you can submit to someone in all things. We commonly submit to someone in a thing, a handyman who might know something about your house or might be able to fix your uh, car. Um, we're wise to submit to them in what they tell us to do, um, but we might not submit to them in all other areas. A, a physician, you know, if I have an issue of the heart, I'm going to be honest, I know nothing about that, and I'm going to trust in 
uh, a cardiologist. I'm going to trust in someone who knows uh, what they're talking about. Again, our boss, because they've been entrusted with authority, whether they own the business or whether they've been entrusted by the government or whomever it may be. But there are some times when we submit to people in all things. People submit to often a mentor and they say, hey, I'm going to pattern my life based on what they tell me to do or maybe a counselor and the advice they're giving me or, or a parent. Now, I will say this. I think it should only be God that we submit to in all things. And so we might submit to a counselor or a parent or a mentor in a lot of areas, but ultimately it is only God who we say we're going to submit to him in all things. And when it comes to God... He is all-knowing and he is all-powerful and everything belongs to him. So we should submit to him in all things. That means that we have to choose to acknowledge the legitimacy of his authority and align our lives, therefore, with his will, which is not natural or easy when what he asks of us goes against what we think or what we want. And what we have in our text this morning is a passage that gives us a clear picture of Jesus submitting to God's will. And this not only gives us an example, but it also gives us hope. And I want to look at some observations about Jesus in this passage and challenge us as we move forward with our lives today. The first thing I want to point out is that Jesus was overwhelmed by God's plan for him. Now before you argue with me about the use of that word overwhelmed, uh, I really couldn't think of a great word to use here. I think this was the best word, and when I use the word overwhelmed, I mean that Jesus was carrying a huge weight because of God's plan for him. I don't think to say Jesus was burdened is enough. So from a humanly perspective, Jesus was overwhelmed by the weight that he was carrying. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a setting for what takes place in these verses. The Greek form of a Hebrew word, which means oil press, is is what Gethsemane is. Luke says that they're on the slope of the Mount of Olives. John tells us that it was indeed a garden. Now, there's actually a place today that is believed to be the Garden of Gethsemane, but we are not certain that it is the Garden of Gethsemane. And actually, if you were to go to the Holy Land, there are a few different groups that claim to have this site. If you've ever been to any tropical uh, destination, um, there's almost a place in every town that says, this is where Jimmy Buffett wrote Cheeseburger in Paradise. It's like that in the Holy Land as well. We do have a picture that kind of shows you what the setting was probably like. It was somewhat remote, and so he escaped there, if you will, to pray. Verse 33 says, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. There are only 11 disciples at this point because Judas has left to betray him. He leaves eight of them back further and takes Peter, James, and John with them. There are a lot of words that can be used here to translate what's taking place, but I do think the NASB and the ESV do a good job in using the words distressed and troubled. There's this heaviness on Jesus. If you're an athlete and you have a big game that's coming up, there can often be this, this heaviness. You feel it in your stomach about that game that you're about to have. If you have a test that you've been working hard for and that has a lot of you know, weight to it, there can be this heaviness about that 
test. Maybe there's an operation that could, could indeed improve your life, but also there are risks associated with that operation. And so there's this heaviness as you look forward to that operation. But I use all those examples understanding that there's really no human comparison to what is happening here in the garden. Verse 34, it says that Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus uses language similar to the Psalms, Psalm 42 specifically, to convey what he's feeling. It's not just the weight of the task. It's a sadness about the task that really is causing Jesus to not even want to continue. And this is very dangerous for the mission. It is possible to become so sad, so burdened, so heavy that reality is distorted for us. That the future seems hopeless and action seems impossible. Perhaps you have tasted this. This is not a small thing that we encounter in our lives. And so here Jesus must fight against the immobilizing effects of this horrible weight of sorrow. And we too must fight against the horrible effects of this weight of sorrow. Whenever we are grieving, we must realize that there is this tendency, there is this possibility that we would not move forward because of our grief. Whenever we have experienced a broken relationship or we experience rejection, that the, the hopelessness that we might feel may cause it to be difficult for us to even get out of bed. And when our dreams are crushed, it's hard for us to see the point in moving forward. Now, a part of this moving forward might be getting counseling or taking a season of rest from what has caused us sorrow or working through the relationship, but we cannot let these things paralyze us from living our life for God. But that charge, that challenge, does not, however, illegitimize the feelings that you have. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus felt every bit of the challenge that lied before him. Verse 35 says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now Luke tells us that Jesus walked about a stone's throw away from the disciples. So if I threw a stone, uh, Jesus was about 50 to 60 yards away and if Pastor Justin threw the stone, he's only about 25 to 30 yards away. <laughs> the normal posture for prayer was standing with your hands lifted heavenward. So if you are next to a lifelong Baptist and they're giving you the side eye, just tell them I'm doing it the way they did it in the Bible. Luke tells us that Jesus first knelt down. And then Matthew says that he fell on his face. Jesus kneels down to show submission to the Father. And then he shows the agony of what he felt. Prostration and prayer was indicative of spiritual anguish. And in his desperation, Jesus showed a dependence on God the Father because he understood who the Father is. And the th second thing I'll point out to you this morning is that Jesus acknowledged that all things are possible for God. Jesus acknowledged that all things are possible for God. Verse 36 says, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I'll stop there. Perhaps if you're familiar with the Bible, you're thinking of the statement with God, all things are possible. 
Matthew chapter 19, verse 26 is the first verse of scripture that I ever memorized when I was a, became a Christian in high school. When I memorized Matthew 19, 26, with God all things are possible, I thought, God can help me do anything I want to do. And I want to make a clear distinction between the way that teenage James Ross was thinking and the way that Jesus is thinking. The appropriate way to approach God is with the understanding that he is at the center, that he is on the throne, and that we need to kneel down before him. And perhaps, if we're honest, we need to get our face on our face before him because we hear what he wants and we're struggling with that. We do not approach God as if we are the superior and he is there to make everything that we dream to be possible, possible. It's remarkable how much of the Bible that we miss when we try to use the Bible as justification for living the life we want to live. The verse that I'm talking about in Matthew and elsewhere is actually a follow-up on the rich man who wants to go to heaven and then walks away sadly when Jesus says, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and follow me. Then Jesus tells his disciples, it's harder for a rich man to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. So maybe you could suggest that it's actually hard for someone to go to heaven who's looking for God to just give them everything they want on earth. But Jesus then tells the disciples, God can change this man's heart. With God, all things are possible. He's saying you might not know how to lead these people to change, how to change a person's heart to see God as their treasure and devote their life to him, but God can change this person's heart. And I would just suggest that maybe you've been disappointed with God for some time because he hasn't enabled you doing everything and having everything you want when the truth is you should be disappointed with yourself and what you want. And you, in this moment, should look away from yourself and look to God. As you follow God, you will find out that some things are difficult and you will not want them to go down the way they're going down. Here in the garden, Jesus understands God is for us. Abba, Father, there's an intimacy there. All things are possible for him. And in that light, he looks at what is going on and he asks him to change things. Jesus asked God to change his circumstance. Jesus asked God to change his circumstance. When Jesus uses the language of the cup, it's symbolic to suffering. And it's symbolic to suffering here, not joy, even though the two meanings are often blended in the poetry of the Bible. The cup that Jesus is asking to be removed from him is referring to the horror of the next 18 hours of his life. The physical torture. The abandonment of his friends, his disciples. The turning away of his father when Jesus becomes sin for us. You see, the suffering of Christ is not theoretical. It's real. And it's costly. And we see here how much this cost Jesus. So Jesus is saying to the father, there's another way this can go down 
Can we do it? Now, there's nothing wrong with this. He knows that the Father can do what he wants. What we have here is not a reluctant Jesus, because Jesus has said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It is not that Jesus is reluctantly going to the will of God the Father, for he goes purposefully and submissively the way we ought to go forward in life as believers. But in his humanity, Jesus struggles with the plan because he's a man. He's a real man. We see the person of Christ here. His mother taught him the alphabet. His dad taught him that the cow goes moo and the pig goes oink, oink. His parents taught him things like a child would learn. His psychological, emotional, and physical development was the development of humanity within the framework of all that is normal. And here we see that it is okay as sons and daughters, as men and women, to say, God, I know your power. And we've got this diagnosis. And it means we're going to live with this for the rest of our earthly life. Or it means that we have a difficult road ahead. And I know, God, that you can use it to help me see your goodness and to help others see your goodness. But can you heal me and still do the same? God, I know your power. We have a lot of expenses here. And we weren't really swimming in finances anyway. And, and we're trying to be faithful to you and giving. And we trust you. But somehow could you bless us with some extra money or not allow this to be so expensive so that trusting you isn't as stressful? God, I know your power. And it just feels like I'm in a season of facing challenges after challenges and maybe challenging people. And I know you're gonna grow me through all of it. But if you could just change their heart or you could show me how to fix things, wouldn't that help? It's okay to think this. It's okay to feel this. It's okay to say this. Can it not be this way, God? But always, with Mark chapter 14, verse 36 in sight, where Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And what we see here is that Jesus submitted to the will of God. Jesus submitted to the will of God. We see Jesus submitting to the will of God despite his earthly desire. Sometimes God's will is not what we would label as earthly good. Now we can get hung up here in what we mean by God's will. Because yes, it was God's will that Christ would be crucified, but also, it was not God's desire that people would want to crucify him. And we can quarrel over words when the Bible actually explicitly warns us not to quarrel over words. But let's just say here, God permits, maybe causes things to go down that do not accord with our standards of what is best. Perhaps the clearest example of this is Job. Job, if you're not familiar with the story in the Old Testament, loses everything. His, his children, his possessions, his wife's telling him to curse God and die. 
But I want you to notice Job's response to his loss at the end of chapter 1. In verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of this loss, what does Job first do? He worships. The word that's translated as worship there really means that he does lay prostrate. And we see the text says that he fell on the ground. And in that moment, he realizes everything has come from you, God. And you are good, no matter what you give me and what you take away from me. The appropriate response when what we desire and what God permits or causes to go down in our lives does not match up is worship and submission. Now, Job is an extreme example, but let's walk through some more common examples that we might face. Some of you are dating or you are going to be in that season of your life where you are looking for someone to marry and you desire to be married and it's not happening in the time in which you want it to happen. And you begin to kind of feel this loneliness creep in and and it leads to all kinds of other emotions. And in those moments, you have to say, God, I submit to you and your plan. When you're dating, you have desires, sexual desires. And, and in that singleness that you want fulfilled, and there's a temptation to give in to those desires, when you have to say, God, I submit to you, I submit this to you, and I trust that you are for my good. You know the kind of person you need to be married. You have people sp- married to. You have people speaking into your life. And there is a temptation that I've seen people give into over and over again where you do not marry someone because of their commitment to Christ, but you marry them because of other things. And it leads to heartache. And you have to submit to the will of God and be patient and stay true to those standards. Or maybe you are married and, and you face challenges in your marriage. And in those moments, you have to submit and say, God, help me not to first and foremost be concerned with whether or not my spouse is meeting my expectations, but help me to first and foremost be your vessel and humble myself before you. It is not my job to make them be the spouse that they are supposed to be. It is my job to be the spouse you have called me to be. And we have to submit ourselves to the Father in that, even if they're not on the same page. And when things are very difficult and you feel like giving up, help us to submit to God that my commitment to my spouse is conditioned on your love and not on their actions. When it comes to money, I know some of you, you struggle with giving to God through the church. And it really is going to take you getting to a place where you're saying, I trust you, God. I am submitting this to you, God. Maybe it's just contentment. You see what other people have. And you're not getting to that level of freedom or that level of possessions. And you have to say, God, I trust you. Trust that you're for me. And I'm gonna continue to be faithful to you. Maybe it's financial difficulty. You don't understand why God's causing what he's allowing to happen or permitting to happen or whatever. And you just have to say, God, I'm gonna continue to submit to you and be faithful. When it comes to being a part of the church, a big part of growing in our faith is our submission to God. And our submission to God teaching us through others. And really being willing to say, God, teach me. I don't know all the things. 
teach me, grow me, shape me, serving, isn't about us serving in a way that we feel like we are always getting exactly uh, the difference that we wanna make in people's lives and doing things that we wanna do. Sometimes our talent is wasted, our skills are wasted, our time is wasted, but Lord, help me to be submissive to you in this. When people talk to us and we respond to them, our response isn't conditioned upon the patterns of the world or how they talk to us, but rather in submission to who Christ is. Whenever we make decisions, we don't go on our impulses. We don't listen to the counsel of the world, but we submit our direction to God. And our expectations about life should be centered first and foremost around Christ being used through us. And when our other disappointment, it creeps in, we lay that before God and submit to him. And you need to be aware that this is the struggle of your life. Is things not being the way you think they should go or going the way you want them to go and still submitting to God, yet not what I will, but what you will. I am going to be faithful to you even if I don't understand why. Even if I don't feel like it's fair, I'm gonna be faithful to you. And the words of Jesus here in our text actually inform us <clears throat> about who we are. Mark chapter 14, verse 37. Listen to what takes place, the rest of the text we read this morning. It says, <clears throat> Jesus came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to pray. Remain and watch. There's some uncertainty as to what exactly they were supposed to be doing, but he most certainly did not want them to fall asleep while they were watching guard. But here's what we see. We see a contrast between the strength of Jesus and the strength of the disciples. I think we have a tendency, it's a lot heavily influenced by like new age thought, to look at Jesus and think we can reach the same level as Jesus. I'm pretty sure there's a whole whack group of Christians who believe things like this. Like we can be some kind of mind benders or something. This isn't stranger things. This is real life. There's a hymn that if we have ever done, we're not going to do anymore, I'm sure. And the hymn, go, it's called Where He Leads Me. And in the hymn, there's two verses. One of them talks about how I'll go with him through the garden. And the other hymn talks about how I will go with him through judgment. And I'm just going to read you the words of J. Vernon McGee. He says about this hymn, I think it is audacious and actually borders on blasphemous for people to sing, I'll go with him through the garden. McGee says, I'm sorry, friend. If you don't mind, I'll beg off. I can't go with him through the garden. You don't know how weak and stumbling and bumbling I am. I can't go with him through the garden, but I'll do my best to stand at the edge and watch him pray. And even in that, what we see in the disciples is they can't stand at the edge and watch him pray. Jesus says, verse 38, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's our application this morning. First, from verse 38, Jesus says, 
we need to watch out for temptation. We need to watch out for temptation. There is always temptation around us to not be faithful to what God has called us to do. When God tests us even to grow us, there's a temptation to not trust God, not persevere, but to give in to our desires. I wanna ask you a question this morning. If Satan were to take you out today, what is the easiest way he could do it? If Satan were to come and take you out, stop you from being faithful, stop you from your commitments to God, stop you from your commitments to your family, how would he do it? Would it be sex? That certainly ruined many people's lives. Would it be greed? That certainly caused many Christians to not be faithful to God. Would it be fame or influence? Certainly many people have begun to become addicted to fame and influence and you see them no longer maintain integrity and faithfulness to God. Would it be your anger and your inability to control that anger? And I could list a bunch of other things, but we need to be aware. What is it that is weak about us? What is it that if Satan were to come in, this would be the easiest thing for him to do this? And if, and if you haven't thought about that, if you can't answer that, you need to think about that and maybe ask the person sitting next to you and they might know very clearly what that would be for you. We need to realize our heart and our desires are constantly trying to lead us away. That's why James said in James chapter one, verse three, verse, excuse me, verse 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each of us is, each person, sorry, different translation, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is the constant leaning of our heart. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And so I would ask you, what safeguards and disciplines do you have in place in your life to help you avoid temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to have these safeguards and disciplines to help us avoid temptation. As I mentioned, sex, greed, influence, anger. Look, I know it is not cool to call sin, sin anymore. And it's not cool to be conservative about the exercise of our freedoms anymore. But you know what is even less cool? Ruining your marriage. Wrecking your family. Giving into greed and negating years of hard work and savings. Losing your credibility. And tearing others down. Check your ego. Many men and women have been destroyed and have created a path of destruction because they weren't aware in a moment my desires can give in to sin. Don't think because you've been coming to church for X period of time or you're a life group leader or you go on a mission trip or whatever it might be that you're exempt from this. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This text says, hey, God will deliver you out of it, but you gotta be aware that we are tempted and none of us stands. We need to watch out for temptation. The second application today is we need to pray for God's will. We need to be praying people who are praying for God's will. Jesus goes away here in our text and he prays three times about this. When we pray, 
we are calling on God. Now hear me out. There is no power in prayer. All of the power is in God. There is no power in prayer. All of the power is in God. Jesus is not trying to employ the power of prayer to rectify a situation. And some movements in Christianity have placed a great emphasis on the act of prayer and how we pray and how often we pray and how emotional we are and we pray. It is not prayer that works. It is God who works in response to our prayer. When Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, he taught us we ought to pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy is his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this prayer that says we need to recognize God's position and we need to recognize our position. And we need to align ourselves with him. We need him to intervene in our life. He even says right before he teaches us how to pray, don't go around praying like the pagans. Meaningless repetition. You know, like it's this act. And they would go around and they would say the God's name over and over and over and over again. He's saying, focus on who God is. The goal then of prayer we see in the Lord's Prayer and elsewhere and what we see modeled in Jesus is our submission to God's will. Now this does not mean that there's not a lack of passion, lack of emotion, or intensity. Look at what's taking place in the garden according to Luke. Luke says, he's the physician, so he gives us a little more detail. Verse 43 and 44. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, it was a cold evening. If you remember from last week, it was an evening that was cold enough that there was a fire kindled in the home of the high priest where Peter warmed himself. And so on an evening that's cold enough for a fire, what is happening here that causes Jesus to sweat so profusely? And J. Vernon McGee says, we can only stand here on the fringe. There are mysteries in the garden that we cannot understand. And you have to recognize that what is taking place here is profoundly spiritual. And it is not to the same extent of what is taking place here in the garden, but prayer is a profoundly spiritual thing. It's a spiritual battle or struggle. The struggle for our submission to God's will is deeply spiritual. The struggle for our submission to God's will is deeply spiritual. Ephesians says there's a war, a spiritual battle that's taking place. And if we submit to God's will, then we are about the kingdom of heaven winning. And if we're not, then we're not. And that is a deeply spiritual battle that's taking place. And we have to be aware here of that battle that's going on in us. Not going to read it all, but in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says, Hey, I find myself not doing the things I want to do. And he kind of sums it up in verse 25 of Romans 7, and he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. 
And I think we have to acknowledge this reality here this morning, that we might know the things of God and our heart, our flesh is constantly trying us to get to do the things of James or fill in your name there. This is why we need to watch out for temptation and we need to pray for God's will, submitting to God's will. And when we find ourselves in these moments where things aren't what we hoped, what we wanted, we don't know what to do, our ultimate hope is found in realizing what happened in the garden when Jesus said, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he would carry that burden to the cross, to the grave, where he'd be buried with our sin and he would rise from the grave. And God did not give Jesus what he wanted from an earthly perspective. He did not spare him from death. But God gave Jesus victory over death. God did not spare Jesus from death, but he gave him victory over death. And what I want you to walk away from here this morning is not moralizing this. And thinking in the same way that Jesus conquered, you know, whatever and rose from the grave that I can. And that's my hope. And, and, and I've got to rise up. I'm enough. I can do it. All those things. No, what I hope you realize this morning is look away from yourself and look to the garden and see who Jesus is. Look to the garden and understand we're not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero of this story. And Jesus isn't just our example of victory, Christian. He is our victory. And so when we pray and we realize our unrighteousness, we realize his righteousness given to us. When we pray and we realize that we are weak, we realize the strength of the spirit of God to live in us. When we feel our guilt, we realize his innocence that is given to us. When we are burdened by the things of this life, we realize the freedom that we have in Christ because he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. In our insecurity, we are given the confidence of the Holy Spirit in our blindness to what we should do next. Be thou my vision. And in our resistance to the challenges of our life, we look to his endurance. And we remember that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews says. And the joy that was set before Jesus was you and I purchased to spend eternity with him walking in the freedom that he has bought for us. That's our hope. That's how we move forward. Because if he did not spare his own son, how will God not with him graciously give us all things? God is for us. That's what we see here. That's what we look to. May we walk in that today. Pray with me, church. God, I pray this morning that we would come to you kneeling before you. Maybe for the first time we are recognizing your authority and we're bowing before you and we're saying, you're the Lord. And God, maybe for some of us this morning, it's just reminding ourselves every day to begin our day whether it's literally or figuratively kneeling before you, 
and submission to you. And maybe because of the circumstances of our lives, we need to be on our face, lay prostrate before you, desperate for you, desperate for your will. And God, what we have in Christ is a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that causes us to move forward. And I pray as we respond now, it's with a desire to say, glory to Christ, may I live for him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.